The scripture today is from uh, Zephaniah, uh, chapter 1, verses 7 through 18. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods will be plundered and their house laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make all the inhabitants of the earth. Let's pray. Lord, um, we thank and praise you that we are able to gather publicly um, to worship you and learn more about you and your word. Um, and to proclaim your name. I ask that you would um, be present in our hearts and that your Holy Spirit would be moving both in Kevin's heart as he speaks and that you would speak through him and uh, speak truth through him and um, in our hearts as we listen that you would soften us and um, prepare us to hear what you have for us. We thank you and love you in your name. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, good morning. Uh, good to see you guys here today. Am I on? There we go. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm sure you guys will hear me through the, the speakers here in just a minute. Um, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Alathia. It's good to see you guys this morning. A um, couple of just like really quick announcements. Um, you guys may have seen this back on the, the table with all the food and cereals and whatever else, or if you were over here at the, the welcome table. Um, next, next Sunday, we have a members meeting directly um, after church. Probably try to start it by like 12.15, 12.20. And so if you're a covenant member here, please plan to attend. If you're interested in becoming a covenant member, please plan to attend. If you don't know whether or not you want to be a covenant member, please plan to attend. Um, there is information here on, um, you know, kind of the way I describe this covenant to people. Um, it, this is not a document um, that is contingent upon your performance on whether or not you can be a member at this church. The reason this document exists is to let you guys know what we believe 
a vibrant follower of Christ should look like in the local church. And this is a covenant, if you are a member here, you are covenanting with the, uh, with the other members of this church, hey, I wanna walk with Jesus with you this way. I want you to hold me accountable. I wanna hold you accountable. This is what I want it to look like. So I've got a couple of these uh, stationed around different parts of the building. Uh, back there on the, the table is one, there we go, holy cow. <laughs> All right, do I need to whisper until you guys figure this out? Or Okay, there we go. All right, so if you are interested, on the left side is a statement of faith, right? Just basic things about what we believe as followers of Christ. And on the right side are things that we think are becoming of a growing and maturing disciple of Christ. And all that information should be there as well. So I would encourage you to grab one of those, and I would encourage you to be here uh, next week. Um, if you can throw the uh, prayer slide up there, uh, Brent. Um, just so you guys know, um, we have church-wide prayer every Monday night at Brent's house, which is directly across the street. I would encourage you guys to attend there. If you can't make it, but you have prayer requests, we have a new Facebook group that's just centered around prayer requests. Uh, I would encourage you to, to join that. I believe it's linked to the Alethea Gainesville page at this point, so um, you can join that as well um, and, and log in there. And then, Brent, is there one more announcement, I think? Yes, ladies CG is Tuesday night and men's CG is Wednesday night this week. Both are meeting this week because of the holiday this past week. Uh, then next week we'll get back on our normal Sunday, Sunday schedule, or summer schedule, excuse me. Uh, but women's is Tuesday night, 6.30, and then men's is Wednesday night, 6.30 here. So plan to attend both of those. All right, if you get a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Zephaniah. Uh, if you're unsure of where Zephaniah is, turn to the Old Testament and then look for Habakkuk. Um, if you are in you know, the first five books of the Bible, you haven't gone far enough, you need to pass Psalms, you need to pass Ecclesiastes, you need to pass Isaiah, Hosea, Joel. You need to pass all these uh, bigger prophets because Zephaniah is one of the minor prophets. Um, so, so head there, um, and we'll be finishing up chapter one this morning. Uh, last week, if you were here, Derek went through the, uh, the first six verses of chapter one and also gave us a little background uh, to the book itself. So if you, if you were here last week, some of this will be review. If you weren't here last week, you're going to get a little bit of new information and some things that I think Derek missed. Um, so, hey, Derek makes fun of me all the time. I can say whatever I want about that guy, right? Um, so, so what we saw last week, though, primarily in Zephaniah chapter 1 is this. Judgment is coming to Judah. Right? And, and if you were paying attention to Kayla as she read our uh, verses this morning, did anybody have that like deep, uh, just like Hallmark movie moment as you heard all the terrible things that God was going to do to Judah? Right? Like, no one particularly tends to care for uh, the, the type of stuff you see oftentimes in, 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 the, in the prophetic writings. Right? Like, I mean, let me, let me share with you some things that we saw last week. Right? In verse 2, God says this, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. He says in verse 3, I will sweep away every man, uh, man and beast. And then in verse 3, he also says, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. Right? Not your typical super encouraging words that you see in the scripture that we're often looking for. Right? Like, like everybody kind of tends to, especially uh, with social media and things, like post really, really encouraging verses to, to try to in, encourage one another in their walks with the Lord. Right? I, I am from the days when dinosaurs still roam the earth, and we used to have this thing called AOL Instant Messenger where you could put up an away message. And I remember oftentimes in my campus ministry, people would put up different verses that were really encouraging 
encouraging. I never saw anyone put Zephaniah 1-2 up as their, as their away message for how they were going to walk about their day thinking about the Lord. But here's the thing. Reading sections of scripture like this can, can be admittedly difficult because our picture of God typically is not a full picture of God. Especially in evangelical Christian circles in 2018, our view of God is typically insufficient. Our, our view of God tends to go in one of, one of two ways. Um, either he's a loving, caring, good guy who just wants to kind of hang out with you with no strings attached. You guys have heard me up front here talk frequently about my hatred of those shirts that say Jesus is my homeboy. You know, that typically, right, the, my, my main problem with that is it's an insufficient view of God. It's like, you know, Jesus is not your frat brother. He's not. God is, God is not the guy you hang out and play Fortnite with. God is, God is a lot bigger than that. God is, God is, yes, personal and relational, but he's also king and Lord. And so when we start using language and only using language that describes God as being personal and relational and on the same level as us, we lose our all and picture of who God really is. And I would submit to you that reading sections of scripture like the warnings in Zephaniah is God's way of helping us hit a reset button so that our view of God grows to where it needs to. Because if God is just the friend you hang out with, he's easily disposable like many of our friendships are. If God is Lord and King, you're disposable, not him. And so that's what I want us to kind of reset through. And I would say this, if you're, if you're like, well, Kevin, I don't really struggle with that. I don't really struggle with this kind of like f- friendship-only view of God. Um, then I would say that probably then you have, you have then gone into some realm of what is commonly called therapeutic moralistic deism, which is your view of God is not fully engaged with the universe, Right? God's not really super involved. He kind of got things going, but he's not super involved. He cares about us being pretty good people from a moral perspective, but that's about the extent of it. And he's there to help us out of a jam. That's, that's the view of even most Christians or professing Christians. That's the view most of them have of God. He's the God of moralistic therapeutic deism. That, by the way, that is not my term. That's coined by another guy. I'll, I'll tell you more about that in a minute. He wrote a book with, with someone else, and I'll explain more about that here in a minute. But the picture of God in Zephaniah is a God who hates sin, hates rebellion, and passes extreme judgment on those who have exchanged his glory for other things. Because, guys, I, I mentioned this back when we were in, the, in, in um, Galatians, so probably, you know, over a year ago at this point. But I shared something with you guys when we were studying the book of Galatians that went something like this. The thing that God cares most about is his glory. That is what God cares most about. He is interested in the, the worship of him and who he is. And you are part of his glory because he has created you. Meaning, you, by, the human race, by definition, brings glory to God because God created it. Whether a human being ever professes the God of the Bible to be their God or not, they still, on some level, bring glory to him because he created them. 
But God is after a greater increase in worship of who he is because he designed us for worship. He designed us to know our creator and then worship our creator. And so God is after his own glory. And what I mentioned during Galatians to you guys is that's actually good news. It's not narcissistic for God to be after his own glory, but it's actually good news because the problem is, is God is actually worthy of narcissism and none of us are. And the problem is, is typically as human beings, we want to exchange the glory of God, as, as Paul says in Romans 1, for created things, typically ourselves. And so therefore what we're doing is we're robbing ourselves of the intentional design God created and hardwired into human beings, which is to worship something that's actually worthy of being worshipped. We exchange it for so many other things. And so when we get to books like Zephaniah that talk about God's judgment and wrath being poured out on those that have exchanged the glory of God for something less than the glory of God, we should see it as a, a merciful act of God to call us to repentance and hit the reset button. And so, now, something else that needs to be said, too, because I don't know how, how well Derek really kind of brought this home last week. Right? When you see God promising judgment on someone in Scripture, let me just remind you of this. They deserve it. It's, it's, you know, if, if you've experienced punishment and discipline as a human being at times throughout their life, there is, a, there is a chance that you may or may not have been deserving of that punishment. But if God exacted that punishment and that discipline, guess what? It was deserved. Like, look at... Zephaniah chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 with me. God is judging Judah and Israel for some pretty good reasons. Right, look at verses 4 and 5. Look at, what, look at what Zephaniah says. He's speaking for the Lord and the, the Lord is declaring all this. And look, he says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. The, and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Right. So here's what Zephaniah is saying. God is bringing judgment because the, God's chosen people who are supposed to be declaring his glory to the world around them have become pluralistic. They've started worshiping other gods along with the God of the Bible. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Ten Commandments or not. Derek mentioned this last week. Pretty early on in the Ten Commandments, God said, you will have no other gods but me. You will, not, you will not make for yourself an idol. And yet the nation of Israel, right, is com committed to Baal worship, which is probably a, a Canaanite storm god. Um, their idolatrous priests are worshiping all sorts of other things. Uh, they're bowing down on the roofs to the host of heavens, which basically means they were like into like astrology, and worshiping these false gods of the universe uh, that, that were connected with Assyrian and Canaanite religion. And then lastly, said so they bowed down to Milcom, which was an Ammonite god. If you guys can't follow with me there, there's a, the gods of about four or five different people groups that Israel is bowing down to along with Yahweh, the god of the Bible. 
And so they become pluralistic. Right? Now, God has been clear, there's no other gods, and so God's like, look, I'm, 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 done, with, I'm done with Judah. I'm done with Israel. They've, they've gone away from worshiping me alone. On, judgment time is coming. Now, some of you guys might say, well, that seems, pretty, that seems like a pretty harsh response, but that's not the only thing they're doing, right? Look at verse 6. Those who have turned their back from following the Lord and who do not seek the Lord or inquire him. So not only have they become pluralistic, but they're also neglecting worship. They've moved from being God's people and seeing God do amazing things amongst them through um, their uh, exodus from Egypt, through their entrance into the Holy Land, through seeing God defend them time and time again throughout their history of a people as Israel. They've seen all this faithfulness of God, and yet they've turned to worship false gods and are neglecting the worship of the Lord. They turn their back on him. They don't seek the Lord or they inquire of him. So not only do they worship other gods, but the God who had delivered them time and time again, they're not even seeking him any longer. And then lastly, and we, we see this in verse 12, which comes from our text today. Look at what else they were doing. He says, At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are what? Complacent. Those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. So not only have they neglected worship of God, not only have they exchanged worship of God for worshiping other things, but they've become complacent and stagnant in their, in their faith. They don't believe, notice how deceptive that is too. They've become deists. They don't believe God's going to do good, but they also don't believe God is going to do bad, is what it says there in verse 12. They just believe God's absent. They believe that God is completely absent from the people. That he, that he cannot or will not act. And so they've become stagnant. They've said, well, if God's not going to act, we're not going to bother growing in our affections towards him or worshiping him. See, God is judging Judah not because of his anger or his quick temper or even because he's narcissistic. He's judging because of the spiritual unfaithfulness that Israel has displayed time and time and time again. And think about those three things that we just talked about, right? The neglecting of worship, the, the religious pluralism, and the stagnation that, that Judah was going through at this time. Who among us in this room can claim to be a follower of Jesus or not? Who among us cannot relate to one of those three or all three? At some, at, in some way, shape, or form. Right? I said earlier that, that most people in the United States anyway, and I, and I told you guys that I was going to talk about a book. That there was a sociologist named Christian Smith who back in like 2006, 2007, studied American youth from the ages of about age 14 to age 30. And what they found is that actually... Young Americans are extremely religious. At, a, at, a, at about a 90% clip, they're religious. But the God they follow, and this is where they came up with the term, is the God of moralistic therapeutic deism. 
and their belief and the beliefs that most young Americans have about God is that they don't think God will act. They don't think God is super interested in the things going on in this world and that they only seek God when they're in real trouble. Let's translate some of that. They don't think God will act. Deism, stagnation. They tend not to seek after him unless they really need something. That's neglect. And they tend not necessarily to believe that Jesus is the only way, but he's part of just a higher power involved in their lives. That's religious pluralism. All three wrapped up into the largest people group or the largest group of religious people in the ages of, eight, of about 14 to 30. And guys, I would, I would submit to you that I've been around young people for the past decade. It hasn't changed much. Right? That, that is what we are constantly being faced with. And, and, re, and reality is, guys, that most of us, even if we're a professing follower of Jesus, struggle with these as well. Right? Like I, I myself struggle with these. Right? I struggle with stagnation and, and, and trying to put that sin to death all the time. The times I've seen it most prevalent is in the midst of my suffering, and I'm distraught, and I hate my suffering, and so I'm slow to think God will move, and so instead of pressing into him, I just stay where I'm at. Right? I tend to neglect God, and this is the deceptiveness of sin, that I tend to stagnate when I'm suffering, but when things are going well, I tend to neglect him. Because things are going well, why would I need God to move or act? And pluralism reels its head in my life daily because I love God, but I also love my family. I love my job. I love my friends. I love sports. I love TV. The list goes on and on and on, and I'm quick to exchange the glory of God for a cheap imitation, even my kids. We are all like Judah, teetering back and forth between declaring that the God of the Bible is our king and yet worshiping other gods. And we, much like Judah, are worthy of the same judgment that Judah is under here in Zephaniah 1. And so look at what God says, though, is going to happen. What Zephaniah the prophet says is is going to go forward here at this point, starting in verse 7. He says this, be silent before the Lord God. Right? I love that, right? Zephaniah is reminding us, look, what I'm about to tell you demands your respect and attention. God is about to move. Be fearful and observant. Right? God, God is on the move. Be ready. And then he says this, For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his desk, his, his, his consecrated his guests. Now, here, here's something that I think is just great, right? Derek preached last week and said that, you know, God talks in Zephaniah about the day of the Lord. And then he said, Kevin's going to start talking about that last week. I love being promised that I'm going to do something ahead of time. And so I'm going to attempt to talk about the day of the Lord without letting too much of my eschatology bleed through. Uh, <laughs> admittedly, very difficult. By the way, just... For full disclosure, if any of you want to know about my eschatology, by the way, if you guys aren't super into theology, just tune me out right now. This is, you don't, you're not going to really care. But if you're super into eschatology, I'm a premillennial, 
post-tribulation rapture holder. That's, that's, my, that's my position. Um, if you hold another position, it's fine, you're wrong. I'd love to sit down with you sometime and explain to you why you've misinterpreted Daniel 9 or some different passages in Ezekiel uh, or whatever else. I joke about that, by the way. I'm actually super open to, to hearing other people's um, opinions about that. But so what, so what is the day of the Lord? Right? What, what, is, what is Zephaniah talking about here? Okay. The day of the Lord is used throughout the Old and New Testaments to frequent, frequently describe the coming judgment of God on mankind. That, that's how you see it kind of presented throughout Scripture. Uh, it, and it's, it's meant to be a warning that God does not allow injustice and sin to go unpunished. That's kind of the point of when you see someone talking about the day of the Lord, it's a warning. Saying, hey, look, God is eventually going to pass judgment on man's rebellion. That's, that's what we kind of need to understand just heading into this discussion of the day of the Lord. And sometimes it's a specific pronouncement on Israel, and sometimes it's a pronouncement on all of mankind, and sometimes it's both. That's what you'll see throughout the Old and New Testaments. And so let me give you just a couple of quick snapshot examples of where the day of the Lord is mentioned in Scripture and what is being talked about. In Isaiah 13, Isaiah talks about the day of the Lord, and he uses the image of a battle to describe the coming judgment of ba the Babylonians on Israel for their unfaithfulness. So he's referring to the nations of, nation of Israel's unfaithfulness and that God is going to use a Gentile nation, the Babylonians, to, to pass judgment on their unfaithfulness. And that's going to be the day of the Lord in that particular pronouncement of judgment. In Ezekiel 13, God talks to the prophets and he decrees that the prophets have not properly prepared God's people for coming judgment. He's basically saying to the priests and the prophets of Israel, hey, I'm going to judge everyone and you're not warning anybody. What is wrong with you? If you don't believe me, you can go read these particular sections of Scripture. In the book of Joel, when Joel talks about the day of the Lord, it's seen as a judgment of Israel and all nations, and it declares that God and his people will be the final victor over sin and rebellion. In Obadiah 15, I think I had you put that one in there for me, Brent. In Obadiah 15, this is a judgment on Edom, which was an enemy of Israel, Right for their sin, but salvation is for God's people. So even typically, when God is talking about judgment, when connected with this term, the day of the Lord, he also talks about God vindicating his people, his true people that truly love him and truly worship him. And then when we get to Zephaniah, my voice cracked, that was awesome. You guys can laugh at me there if you want to. In Zephaniah, we see judgment for those who refuse to exalt God, but we also see later on in the book of Zephaniah that those who humble themselves before the Lord will be saved and find refuge in him. And then I want to turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is one of the most famous passages where you'll see this idea of the day of the Lord being talked about in the New Testament. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says this. And actually, I want, to go to, I want to go to verse 16 in chapter 4 first. 
He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So he's talking about Christ's second coming right here in, Thessal in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. And then when you get to chapter 5, this is what he says. The first three verses of chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So you see in, in, in chapter 4, Jesus is going to return to signify that things are going to be set back in place. He's going to judge and rule on the earth. And then when you get to chapter 5, we see that the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. And what, what, what Paul means by that is for those that have not been properly warned about God's judgment, they're not going to be ready for Christ's return. It's going to seem as if they were asleep and a thief came while they were asleep. That's, that's what this day of judgment is going to seem like to them because they're unsuspecting and they haven't taken God seriously. So when he comes to judge them, they'll be surprised. He uses another term there that's going to be like labor pains and pregnancy. And what he's saying there is the really, really tough stuff is going to come quickly. I've, I've watched my wife give birth twice now. She would say to you that it's kind of painful towards the end just in general, but that when the full brunt of labor hits, it's quick and furious. And so this is what Paul is saying, that this day of the Lord, this day of judgment is going to catch a bunch of people by surprise because like he said back in Ezekiel 13, the prophets aren't properly declaring that God's judgment is coming. And so the day of the Lord frequently has a double meaning in Scripture, but it has two primary functions, to either describe the impending judgment on Israel for their sinfulness and neglect of the Mosaic Covenant, which means discipline is, and punishment is coming on them as a people, but it has a greater warning to all of mankind to describe the impending judgment of God on mankind for their sinfulness and neglect upon Jesus' return. That God will judge everyone based upon their performance on the day of the Lord. And so in Zephaniah, we see both judgment and what that judgment will be like. like for example, go back to Zephaniah with me and look at, look at verses 8 through 12 with me. Right, I'm not going to read all of it, but in verse, in verse 8, he talks about judgment being passed on all of the, the, the worldly kings and rulers. Right? He says the officials and kings. In verse 9, those that will have judgment passed on them are the committers of violence and fraud. In verse 11, he talks about judgment being passed on the traitors. And he's referring there to people that, that do business in an unseemly manner. Right? When he gets to verse 12, he talks about the complacent and the faithless. And so what we see is God's going to pass judgment on everyone on this day of the Lord. And here's what that judgment's going to be like. I just pulled out a couple of the adjectives that God uses there in verses 8 through 18. Here's what the day of the Lord is going to look like to those who are perishing. Distress. Anguish. Ruin. Devastation. Darkness. Gloom, clouds, darkness and crying out, 
in the ruin of a lost battle. <coughs> Excuse me. God promises to bring distress on Judah for their unfaithfulness, but he's also here in Zephaniah promising that sinners will be judged. If you look at verse 18, excuse me, starting in verse 17. He says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now, if we finish there this morning, how excited would you be? Like, would there be, would there be any reason to gather and worship? Because if that was our only promise... You and I are all in deep, deep trouble, right? Because the pronouncement over us is that our blood will be poured out like dung. I love in verse 18 that he, he says, neither silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Meaning you and I can't do anything to save ourselves, there's nothing mankind can do to save themselves. He says that the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. Right, not your, your typical Hallmark greeting. <coughs> not what we frequently view God as. But notice this. Go back to verse 7 and 8 with me. Because this is the pattern that we see throughout Scripture. That when God makes a decree of judgment and declares that judgment is coming, he almost always follows it up with a promise of what he's going to do. Right, look at verse 7 and 8. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. Right, look at what he says there. He says, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. Now, guys, we've talked about sacrifices frequently here over the, over the years. Right, and there's typically two types of, of common sacrifices in the Old Testament. There's one for worship and there's one for atonement. And atonement was a sacrifice given to petition to God to forgive Israel for their sins. But if you notice in Levitical law, the ones who were offering up the sacrifices in Levitical law were the priests. But who's offering up the sacrifice for atonement here in verse 7? God. It says that on this day of the Lord that is coming, beforehand, God will have prepared a sacrifice. This is not customary in Levitical law, yet God has done it. God has prepared a sacrifice for this day. And then it says this, that he consecrated his guests. 
The Hebrew here indicates that there's a, a preparation or a sanctification or a being made holy. That's what that word means in Hebrew, that God's guests on the day of the Lord have ahead of time been prepared and been made holy, that they have been set apart. So the promise here is that even as this day of judgment on the day of the Lord approaches, when God comes to pass judgment on all the sinfulness of mankind, that he will have prepared a sacrifice and he will prepare his people ahead of time. Guys, this is the gospel. This is the gospel being promised in Zephaniah. That God is promising that before final judgment, God will have made a way. Remember in Romans 8, right, all the things that Paul talks about that God has done on our behalf in Romans 8. He says that there is no condemnation any longer for those who are in Christ Jesus in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. And then he says that Jesus was God's sacrifice for us in verses 3 and 4. Then he goes on to say in verse 33 that we are God's chosen and elect, meaning that we were consecrated and made holy by him ahead of time. Then he goes on to say in verse 4 that we will no longer be judged according to our works, but God's works on our behalf. And then he says in verse 7 of 8 in Romans chapter 8 that those who are not in him will still be judged based upon their own merits on the day of the Lord. Everything we see in two verses of Zephaniah chapter 1. God is promising here in Zephaniah that although judgment is coming, he will also rescue his elect. Coming up in Zephaniah, what you're going to see in chapters 2 and 3 is in chapter 2, you're going to see a call to repentance. And then chapter 3, God is going to talk about restoration. But that offer of impending judgment, that warning, and then that call to repentance and belief and restoration is extended to every single one of us. Guys, here's the reality. Right? And I can say this with full confidence because I know every single one of us are exactly the same in this way. We are all complacent, we are all neglectful, and we are all guilty of pluralism. There is not, there is not a person in this room that has not fallen into that camp in some way, shape, or form at some time. Maybe you're in a season right now where you're not as complacent or you're not neglecting worship of God or you're not committing as, as much idol worship as maybe you would have at other times. But all of us are guilty of this at some point in time. And because that is true of us, all of us are deserving of God's wrath. Our blood being poured out like dumb, as Zephaniah says. Judgment awaits all of us. And yet we see, even in this small little prophetic book in Zephaniah, that although judgment awaits all of us because of our sinfulness, God in his mercy extends a warning that the day of the Lord is coming, and that he also promises us that he has made a way. For those who repent of their sin, who declare to God, God, I, I, I do neglect worship of you. 
God, I do worship things other than you. God, I am guilty of stagnation and complacency. I am. If we declare that to be true and ask for God's forgiveness and trust in that forgiveness and ask God to change us and, and, and move us so that we might walk in obedience with him, if we do, the promise is this. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And guys, for those who lived in the time of Zephaniah, they looked forward to this as a future promise. Guess what? For those of us living today, that promise has already been fulfilled in the work of Jesus Christ. Because the reality is that Christ was the sacrifice for our sin. He was the atoning sacrifice that God had prepared Guys, when Jesus went to the cross, he just wasn't going as some sort of political martyr or because he was unpopular in Israel. He was going to satisfy God's wrath for our sin. He was a substitution. That when Christ hung from the cross, God's wrath was being satisfied for my sin and for yours if you're in him. And that when Jesus breathed his last, I love mentioning this because when Jesus cries out, his last words on the cross are, it is finished. And he's not referring to his time on earth. He was referring to the wrath of God's sin, on sin. Finally being fully paid. And that God's judgment on those who are in Christ had been paid for once and for all. And then that promise of consecration is that God will prepare you and that when the day of the Lord comes and in Christ's second coming sees its fulfillment, that those who are in Christ will be taken up with him and they will worship with him and they will worship our God and our King. And they will stand with him in glory, singing his name. And I, I love how in Revelation, the picture of Christ's reign when he returns is that every knee will bow to Jesus. Because he is our God and our king. Guys, Zephaniah is an opportunity for each and every one of us to sit here this morning and reflect on who is my God. Who is my God? And if you sit there and you're honest with yourself and you can say, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is one of many gods in my life. Then the promise of Zephaniah is, yes, judgment, but also the opportunity to repent and believe that what Jesus did for you was sufficient and to see a greater worship of Jesus. Because as you sit and look at your own unfaithfulness and your own unworthiness, Jesus becomes that much sweeter and he tastes that much better because he died for you and he offers you new life and he extends to you hope and peace in his resurrection. My encouragement to you this morning as we take communion 
We take communion here every week. And, and the reason we do is because we want to remind ourselves as an act of worship that Christ poured out his flesh and blood so we might be forgiven. The blood and judgment that poured out like dung, as Zephaniah promises, was done by Christ instead of me. And taking communion is an act of worship for those who are in Christ to, instead of come up and take communion sorrowful and penitent, that you come up here instead and you're repentant of your sin, but then you worship and glorify the name of Jesus because it is finished. You don't have to earn God's favor because Jesus earned it for you. The sacrifice was made ahead of time. And so you can come up as a follower of Jesus and take communion and worship him because he is worthy. And then I would encourage you to, to before you take communion, sit there on your seats and say, God, Father, is there anything in my life that is causing me to neglect you? Is there anything in my life that is causing me to become complacent? Father, is there anything in my life that is causing my attention and my gaze to turn away from you? And as the Holy Spirit reveals those things to you, confess them as sin and ask God to forgive you. And then, and then know that you don't need to earn his favor because God has already earned that favor for you in Christ. And you can come up here and you can take communion and you can go back to your seat joyfully because of what Christ has done for you. And you can ask God to move in you and that as you see a greater worship of him, that he might make you more obedient and enjoy him more. If you are not a follower of Christ here this morning, thanks for being here. I would ask that you not take communion because you don't believe that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for you. If you're really that hungry, we have some food back there on that table. Have at it. But communion is a, a sacred observance for followers of Christ. Identifying with him. Declaring that his death burial and resurrection was sufficient for them and i would encourage you this morning if you're not a follower of christ submit to him you can search through the annals of history you can study every world religion and i can promise you this you will not find one man or woman that has ever walked this earth that will compare to jesus christ Trust me, I tried during my college years. You will not find it. There is none like him. And he's worthy of your worship, and he's worthy of your attention, and he's worthy of all the praise and glory of his name that we can muster. Let's pray, let's take communion, and let's worship him because he's worthy. Jesus, there is none like you. And Lord, for as long as you will allow me, may I never stop declaring how wonderful you are. Father, we, may we as a church family be committed to seeing a greater worship of you. May we come to a greater realization of the depth of our sinfulness 
And may we come to a greater realization of your holiness so that we might see the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross as being the greatest thing that mankind has ever seen. And may it cause us to care about nothing but the worship of your name. God, I love you so much. Father, thank you for the men and women who are here this morning. Holy Spirit, might you incline our hearts joyfully to sing of your glory and your grace. Father, thank you for salvation. Father, thank you for the sacrifice of your son. And Father, thank you that you consecrate and prepare us and set us apart as your people so that we might participate in worshiping and glorifying you. May we know that more each and every day. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.